Well, as you can tell, uh, we've got new lights, which means I will be able to see who is sleeping and who is not. Um, so I hope that the lights inspire you to stay awake and to read along with us. So how about we just open up in a quick word of prayer before we jump in. Father God, we humble our hearts. We ask that you open our eyes. Lord, break stone today, bow knees, bend minds around the gospel. Father, let us crash hard against the rock of Christ. And Lord, if it break us, let it break us. Lord, if it build us, let it build us. God, if people need humbling, if they need built up, God, I pray that your spirit will work his good work in their lives. God, be with me as I speak. Your imperfect instrument, and we just pray that it will be effective, Father, for your glory. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. It's good to be back in the pulpit. Um, appreciate all the guys who've been preaching for us this summer. It's been good to kind of take a good study leave and just take some extra time to focus on the Word and what we're going to be studying this fall, and so I'm glad to be back. How many runners do we have? here today. Anybody like to jog, run, a couple of you? Yeah, yeah, you know, you know, uh, you're in Texas when not many hands are raised, for sure. Um, those of you who run know that running doesn't always mean racing, right? There, There's a big difference between someone who jogs and someone who races, sprints. A few years ago, I uh, lived next to a university that had a very well-kept running trail. It was peaceful, safe, well-lit at night. The Eagle Trail, as it was called, ran in a three-mile loop uh, from beginning to end around the university's facilities, and it was beautifully lined with trees and creeks, and you could go out there and see these squirrels playing, and just lots of wildlife. It It was a lot of fun getting to run on that. Well, one late afternoon, I decided I was going to go on a leisurely jog. Kids were already getting rested down for bed. Rachel uh, kind of wanted a break. Um, and so I said, okay, I, the kids are in bed. I'm going to go out for a little leisurely jog. And so I went out, and it was perfect. And as I'm running, I'm listening to nice music, and I'm noticing this sky that's just slightly overcast, the fall breeze just at my back, listening to birds chirp when I can when I can hear them through my headphones and enjoying the time, just a nice pace. Until all of a sudden I noticed that there was another guy running right next to me. So we're running together. I look over and we give the typical manly head nod. Afternoon. Afternoon. We start running and we just keep running together. Well, over time, I'm realizing, okay, I can't keep running in tandem with this guy, okay? We're running, we're basically taking up the trail between the two of us. So I decide I'm going to pick up the pace and run just slightly ahead of him and, st- and maintain this just a little faster pace in- ahead of him. Apparently, he had the same idea. And so we're both starting to get a little faster, and I look over at him, he looks over at me, and we both knew the same thing. There's no daggum way the other dude's going to outrun us. Before you know it, we're at top speed, sprinting as hard and as fast as we can. Okay? What began as a nice leisurely jog, just kind of restful, is now a race. Big difference. In my leisurely jog, you know, my heartbeat was kind of steady. My muscles weren't so tight. My focus was a little sporadic. But now we're in a race. My mind was bent on finishing first. Muscles were tight. Everything leaning forward to beat this guy. I might jog for enjoyment, but I race to win. And I wanted to teach this guy that lesson. I lost. But the point still stands the same. There's a big difference between jogging and racing. And the thing that changes a leisurely jog into an active race is the fact that there was a prize at stake. There was a prize at stake. The pride of crossing the line first to turn around and look at the guy in the eye and say, beat you, right? There's a prize at stake. That's what's the difference between a nice leisurely jog. Those of you who jog are not racing to win a prize. You're just trying to get your miles in. Maybe you're doing it for enjoyment. But when you race, you want you run to win a prize. That's the difference. 
The same thing can be said about our walk with the Lord. Not everyone who runs in the race of faith is actually racing. There's some of us that are jogging. We just feel like it's all about our enjoyment. There's some of us walking. There's some of us laying in the grass waiting for someone to pick us up and carry us to the finish line. But the reality is, is just because you're running in the race of faith doesn't mean you're actually racing. That your muscles are bent on the finish line. That your mind is focused on finishing this race that Christ has given us. And yet, this is far from the way that Scripture, particularly Paul, talks about the Christian life. Take 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 and 25 as an example. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run? But only one receives the prize. What then? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we do it to receive an imperishable wreath. Or take Corinthians chapter 12 verses 1 through 2 as another example, which says, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. As we're looking at the scriptures, when it talks about the Christian life, there's no leisurely jogs. There's no just nice little walking. It's a race. It is bent on a strenuous, passionately painful effort. Hearts pumping to get to the finish line. Muscles tightened, ready to get there. Wanting to get there. Eyes fixed on the goal. And that's the focus of this passage in Philippians chapter 3. Verses 12 through 21. Paul's goal in this text is to encourage Christians to run the race for Christ. To pursue the prize of life with God. And to take hold of it. To chase it down. The Christian life, I hope you will come to find, is not one that you can just add into everything else that you're doing. It's not just a an attachment or an accessory or a hobby. We are running a race and what's at stake is our life. We are running a race and what's at stake is the prize, is our Savior, is our life with God. And as we will see in this text, why we run and how we run are indivisibly connected together. So, I think it helps to keep in mind why Paul was writing Throughout the letter, Paul expresses the very real potential that this could be his last days. His death could be impending. So he's, he's wondering if he's ever going to see the Philippians again. Seeing that he soon may be out of the picture, his desire is that they will continue on in their growth. He says it many different ways. That they will progress in joy, progress in their love for one another, grow in humility. He wants them to continue on. You see, Paul was not content with reaching the finish line himself. He wanted everyone who ran behind to finish it as well. He wanted those who came behind him to reach the finish line, to reach Christ. My friends, this is the mindset of faithful Christians. How often do we just think that the goal of life is just to get through and for us to just narrowly scrape by for just us to get to the finish line. If, just, if I can just get to the finish line, that's it. But that's not the mind of a Christian that is thinking like Paul. The mind of a Christian thinking like Paul is not just concerned that I singularly will get to the finish line, but that I will help others behind me to get there as well. Have you ever thought that your Christian life is not just for you? That may be the way that you run your race today is to be run in such a way so that it will inspire future racers tomorrow. Maybe the way that you pursue, maybe the way that you run, maybe the way that you deal with conflict, maybe the way that you deal with idolatry, maybe the way that you reject gossip, maybe the way that you run this race of faith is meant to inspire your children, your grandchildren, and generations yet to be here to run the race for Jesus Christ. 
Have you ever thought about that? You're running one leg of the race of this great marathon. Someone handed you a baton, and you will hand the baton off as well. Maybe the focus isn't on you just finishing your leg of the race, but to help someone else as you hand off the baton to finish their race and their leg of the race as well. Some of you are nearing the end to the finish line. Paul would tell you, don't stop. Paul would tell you not to just cross the line and do nothing else. Paul would tell you to help and do everything you can to help others to finish that line as well. That's the best life that you could live. Is to leave a legacy of faith that helps everyone else run just as you have run. Now. It's sometimes difficult to follow the structure of Paul's letters. If you've ever read Paul, I I spoke with a very good friend this week who reminded me how confusing Paul is. Paul can be confusing sometimes. Um, uh, But, you know, you give a preacher a pen and he's going to go to town. Okay, so um, the text at hand that we have can, I think, can be broken into two parts. Very simply, he tells us what he does. And then in the next part, he tells us what he wants us to do. Okay, so he starts with... An indicative, for those of you that love grammar. And then he moves into imperative. So let's look first at what Paul does. He gives no commands, no imperatives. He simply tells us what he does. Verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Now here's a question. What is the this that he claims to not yet have obtained? The most likely object in his mind of the this, I haven't gotten this, the most likely this is up in verse 11. It's the resurrection from the dead. In scripture, especially in Paul's letters, the resurrection means more than simply popping out of the ground. Okay? It's a it's accumulation of all the Christian hope. Everything we hope for. That's the resurrection hope. Life with God. Full restoration. Completion. Perfection. Freedom from sin, freedom from the slavery of addictions, freedom from this fleshly body that is corrupt and broken. It is the culmination of everything we hope for. Paul is living and waiting for that, for the hope of the Christian life, but he knows it's not yet in his hands. Before he ever commands the Philippians to carry out in their faith, carry on in their faith. Paul humbly acknowledges that he himself has not yet arrived. He is still running. I am pressing on. I am running to make it my own. Now, this is incredible. To think of someone like Paul. This is a man who has proven maturity, right? This is one of the best Christians we can speak about, okay? He is... Uh, willing to suffer to the point of death for the gospel. He has been to the, to the edges of the earth and suffered for Christ. I mean, this man is someone, if anyone could claim to be perfect, it would be Paul. And yet, you hear Paul, seasoned in godliness, committed to the point of persecution, freely acknowledging, I've not made it. That's astounding. Paul is so emphatic about the truth that he has not yet arrived, that he says it twice. He wants everyone to know that the Apostle Paul, great as he is, greatest missionary of all time, is a man in progress. It's a great irony, isn't it? That the most sincere Christians, the most mature Christians are the ones that try to convince everybody else that they have not yet arrived. And that the most immature, the most insincere, are the ones that are trying to prove to everyone else that they're perfect or that they have reached the pinnacle of their faith. It seems backwards, doesn't it? Wouldn't, you, if you, wouldn't the mature ones be lording it over everybody else and saying, no, you don't, you don't understand, I've made it. I'm climaxed. Whereas in reality, mature Christians are the ones that are saying, no, you don't understand. I am far from making it. I have a ways to go. And yet, as you think about Jesus and you think about the gospel, this makes sense. 
The closer you come to Jesus, the more you don't see how worthy you are, the more you actually see how unworthy you are. The most seasoned, experienced, mature Christians are the ones that are understanding that they have great grace despite of their sinful selves. That's the mark of maturity. The closer a saint gets to the finish line, the more they're freely admitting, I haven't crossed that line yet. Paul models that here. Paul models what it's like to humbly make that confession. My question is, just for the sake of making this little application here, how many of us would freely admit that we've not arrived yet? Now, most of us would be willing to say it. Few of us actually live it. In the moment of the pressure, in the moment of the time of performing in front of other people, living in front of other people's eyes, our confession tends to go out the window. We spend most of our lives trying to prove to people why we're good enough. Most of our lives trying to prove to people why we are complete, perfect, good, untouchable, finished. We, we don't want, though, though our mouths claim, yes, we have some unpolished spots. Yes, we have some scratches. Yes, we have some unbuffed spots in our lives. Yet, with our lives, we tend to point out only the polish. Only the finished work. Paul does the opposite. He highlights the unpolished. He, hi- he isla- highlights the fact that he has not yet made it. And freely tells everyone, hey, I might be the great apostle Paul. I haven't obtained anything yet. My goal has not been reached. Now, after making this confession, Paul continues by telling the Philippians why he runs. I press on to make it my own, it being the resurrection, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. In other words, the reason for Paul's running the race of faith is that Christ has already won the race for Paul's salvation. He labors to make it his own, to take hold of it, because Jesus has already taken hold of him. Jesus has him. He labors and he strives in the finished work of Christ. Now, for most of us, we think that we have something to accomplish. But Paul says, no, 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 I'm working in his accomplishments. I am striving, and the things that I achieve are not achievements for my salvation or for redemption. That has been achieved. It is accomplished. It is finished. And he lives and works and strives and, and runs in that it is finished. Do you realize how that frees you up as Christians? My goodness, we, we're in a race, but we're not in a rat race. The cheese has already been taken. Jesus has already accomplished redemption. We race, but we run a race that our Savior has already won. That's great motivation. To know that the trail is His, the finish line is His, and He's waiting there for us. Let us therefore run. That's Paul's message here. We live because He died. We will be resurrected because he resurrected. We love because he loved and showed us what it means to love and so on. Everything we do, we do in Christ who did it first, who finished first. We cannot outrun our Savior's work. We cannot outrun our Savior. Now Paul repeats himself in verse 13 saying, Brothers, I do not consider... That I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, why the repetition? Most of us don't like repetition. Well, in Scripture, when repetitions happen, it's either to emphasize a point or to clarify it. Well, here it seems that Paul does both, that he's giving an emphasis. Namely, emphasizing that he has not yet arrived at his goal. And then he clarifies what it means to press on. He says, but one thing I do. That's interesting. One thing. 
And yet this one thing, this I press on, comes with two actions simultaneously. One thing I do. What is the one thing? I press on. What are the two things that are included in that pressing on? Well, first he forgets what lies behind. To press on, you first have to forget what lies behind. Now, at this point, someone might ask, why would Paul want believers to forget what lies behind? Isn't it a good thing to look back? I mean, it's a good thing to look back for the most part, right? We all claim that, right? It's a good thing to look back at your past or to look back at history. And to be sure, Scripture does call us to look back in other places. But the difference is is what you look back to. When Scripture talks about looking back, it's not looking back at yourself. It's not looking back at people. It's looking back at what God has done. Psalm chapter 77, 11 through 12, for example, says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wondrous of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on all your mighty deeds. Notice he doesn't say, I will remember my deeds or their deeds. He doesn't say, uh, I am going to ponder on all my successes. All my mighty works. No, it's a, a pondering of God's mighty works. Thinking back, looking back on what God has done. When we look back, it is not to look back at what we have done, what others have done to us. It is to look back on what God has done for us. See the difference? Many of us look back in our Looking back is filled with all kinds of things. We look back at pain. We look back at wounds. We talk about them a lot. We're not looking back at the right things. Paul knows that if we look back on our own lives, it's going to hinder our race. If you look back on what you do or what others have done to you, it will trip you up. Not might, it will. Dwelling in the past, which is... Looking behind can do one of two things. First off, there's some of us that have a fairly decent history of faithfulness. We have a long tenure of walking with the Lord. Many years of going to church or reading the Bible or being faithful parents or being good godly friends. There's some of us that have had lots of victory over sins. Well, if we look back and continue to look back on all of our faithfulness, here's some of the things that might lead to. Namely, it might lead to complacency. I've served others. Now it's time for me to be served. Don't you know how long I've been in this ministry? I've sacrificed. Now it's time for somebody else to make the sacrifice. Complacency. I've read the Bible enough. I feel like I know God decently enough. The Almighty Creator of Heaven and earth, so why not a little more TV? Because we all know Stranger Things is much more entertaining than Almighty God. Some of us might think about in terms of what we've given, of what we've done. Don't you know I built this place, or I've done this, or I've done that? And we sit back complacently and we brood on our complacency. And sometimes it can put us into a spiritual retirement. The analogy that you can think of is that old man in your hometown that still wears his letterman jacket. He doesn't have a job. He still lives with his mom. Doesn't have a family, no career. But he's the first one to remind you of that homer, that walk-off homer he made at the state tournament. Bank account is empty, but trophy bar is full. And he walks around. He goes to all the baseball games comparing what, how they're playing with the way that he played. Oh yeah, he did a good job winning, but it'll never match how far I hit that ball. If you knew such a guy and you were friends with him, what would you do? I mean, there'd be some point you'd look at this guy and say, okay, first off, get rid of the letter jacket. Okay. It's tripping you up. You're wearing it in the heat of summer during baseball season. Second off, you need to move on. 
Good job winning the state tournament with the walk-off homer. But it's time to go do other things. Move on. The goal of life is not that you won the trophy. My friends, there's some of us, as funny as that illustration might be, there's some of us who live like that daily in our spiritual life. We put on our letterman jacket of salvation. Or we pop our collar as to how long we've served, and we remind everyone, oh yeah, they don't do it as good as I did it. Or we live in the old moth, eaten, nasty, dusty, outgrown jacket and claim that it's good enough. My friends, the key to progressing is to forget the past. Forget what lies behind. You might have been faithful. That's great. Be faithful still. Progress and get more faithful. You might have obeyed God. Great. Obey Him much more now. Don't sit on the old, outdated milk of past obedience. It's disgusting in the eyes of God. Be fresh. Move on. Grow. Progress. Strain forward. But the second thing it might do is it might lead to circumspection. Some of us have had a fairly tough life, right? Lots of wounds. People have hurt us. We've accumulated scars, church hurt, family hurt, job hurt. Some of us have been fired. Some of us have lost loved ones. Some of us have family past that you don't even want to speak about. So it makes you circumspective, meaning that it makes you a little gun shy, right? Circumspective is when you put your son on the bike and he falls over and scrapes his knee and he looks at the bike again with terror and says, I'm not doing that again. It keeps you from taking risk. It keeps you from getting back up on the bike. It makes you hold down, shelter down. You're not going to get hurt like that again. And so we look back at all these pains and all these problems and We shrink back, which according to Scripture actually might lead to your destruction. Because when you shrink back, it is far from being able to pursue the Lord. We hold on. We count scars. And we don't want to get in it again because we don't want any more scars. We forget that there's a great healer that someday will make all those scars disappear. And we treat those scars as if they're eternal and we use them as an excuse for not doing anything. We get prideful about it. Someone hurt us in the past, therefore everyone's going to hurt us. Someone tripped us in the last leg of the race, therefore everyone's out to trip me. My friends, Paul had his fair share of problems in his past. I mean, he was responsible for the imprisonment and very likely the death of many Christians. Paul had sins. You don't think he had sins? You don't think This is weird to think about. Do you not think Paul had sexual sins? He was a man. Do you not think that Paul might have lusted from time to time? Do you not think that Paul might have griped at one of his friends? I mean, we have this whole awkward moment where he turns against his best friend Barnabas and they get so mad at each other, they have to part ways. Paul had his fair share of failures. But imagine if he continued to look back at that and say, you don't realize how I've been hurt. You don't realize how hard it is to be forsaken. Barnabas left me because he was mad at me. Now I'm sitting in prison and no one's here. He laments it in 2 Timothy. Everyone has forsaken me. Talk about scars. The man had physical scars. Rock marks from where they tried to stone him to death. Two holes in his hands where the viper bit. Cuts, lashes, back all torn to shreds. 
But Paul learned that to press on, he has to stop counting scars. Stop naming them. Stop looking at them. Move on. There's some of you that have made big mistakes in your life. Ones that you'll probably never share with another human being. And you're sitting there at the edge of your seat wondering, what do I do now? I've had big problems. You don't realize what I've done. My friends, what's behind you is behind you. What Paul would tell you is to turn around. The finish line is straight ahead, not behind. You're not going to get there by facing where you began. You're going to get there by facing the finish line. It's not how you began. It's how you finish. It's not what you've been through. It's what Christ has done. So as Paul's talking, he's talking to both everyone in here. There's some of you that look back wearing your letterman jacket. There's some of you who are counting all these scars. And he tells you both, get rid of the letterman jacket. Quit looking at the scars. Get off your rump. Get off the grass and run. And finish the race. He's an equal offender in this right. Because what he does is he confronts both legalistic perfectionists and carefree libertarians. For those who think that they can arrive or have arrived, those are the perfectionists, Paul's words come as a humbling reminder that perfectionism is not attainable on this side of eternity. You don't reach the finish line until you've reached it, which means you don't arrive until you arrive. It will not happen right now. And then, for those who approach life lackadaisically, leisurely, lazily, cautiously, the libertarians, Paul's words come as a swift kick of motivation. Right? He's the good coach who humbles the over-arrogant runner, and he's also the good coach that tells the other one to pick up the pace. His message is the same. We have not arrived. Keep running. Don't look back. He wants our eyes forward to the finish line. It's the same thing that the author of Hebrews says later. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We've already read that part. But how are we to run? We're to run looking to Jesus. Our founder. And guess what? Our perfecter. Our founder and perfecter of our faith. Looking backward will not help you win the race. It will only slow you down. It'll make you fall. For Paul, this man, this mixed bag of successes and failures, he chooses not to look at either one, but says, I press on for the goal, for the prize of the upward call. It's a race ran not looking backward, but a race ran upward. Paul is so convinced of the importance of this upward race that he says, let those of us who are mature think this way. If in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Now notice, now this is what we need to be clear as a church. For Paul, maturity is not determined by how old someone is. Maturity is not determined by how many experiences they have. How long they have walked with the Lord. What they have done. That has nothing to do with your maturity. Maturity is based and determined in your mindset. How you think. Not what you've done or haven't done. Maturity is based on how you think. Do I think more about Christ? about eternity, about the kingdom, about the king, about the gospel? Or do I think more about bills, money, the people who have hurt me, my reputation, my achievements, my failures? What do I think more about? And determine on which one I think more about is the measure of my maturity in Christ. There are some very young Christians in here 
that think long and hard about the kingdom of God. And there are some very old Christians in here that think long and hard about their past life, their past wounds, and about themselves. And the weirdness of it all is the young person is more mature in the faith. Forget your age. Forget the past. The question is, how do you think? How do you think now? This is something we should all just be willing, humbly to pay attention to and just to, to honestly pray and search. I had to do this this week. My friends, you might feel the sting. I'm telling you, I have cut myself many times on this text. Just to be completely honest, God, how often am I thinking about things that are not you? God, am I stunted in my progress, in my growth? Because I'm focused too much on the church's budget. Or too much on the fact that I have a new building with this wonderful people. Or I'm focused too much on the fact that somebody might be mad at me. God, help me as a pastor to be mature To think about the king who gives a rip about the people who are mad about logos and buildings and paint and policies. They're not eternal. Help me to run the race for the right goal. My friends, I have found in reading this text, I am not as mature as I wish I was. I get wrapped up, tangled up. My feet get tripped up on the shoelaces of crazy, unimportant things. I'm not as experienced of a runner. After I've studied this text, I've realized I'm not as experienced or skilled of a runner as I thought I was. But, not going to look behind. I'm going to hold to what I've attained, and I will run better next week by the grace of God. I hope we all have that same mindset. Now, having laid out the way he thinks and lives, we just got through the first half of the text. So (laughs) we're on to the next half. Paul's ready to move on from the indicative. I press on to give the imperative, which is this. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Now, the word for example here in this verse can also be rendered pattern. It's typon. Um, It may seem strange to some of us that someone would be so bold to look us square in the face and say, do what I do. Imitate me. We don't like that, do we? Just as independent Americans. I mean, come on. We've been marching to the beat of our own drum for, what, how old are we? 280-something years? 300 years? Probably bad. 1776 minus 2019. You do the math. We've been marching to the beat of our own drum for a long time. We aren't, we're, not, we're not anybody's imitating monkey. And yet, Paul looks at us bold in the face and he says, imitate me. Why? How can he be so bold to say that? My friends, this is the key to discipleship. The key to discipleship is imitation. You want to know the secret of good, faithful discipleship? The secret of good, faithful discipleship requires two things. People who are worth imitating and people who are willing to imitate. Does that make sense? People who are worth imitating, people who are willing to imitate. That's, you want to know what we need for discipleship in this church? We don't need a program. We don't need books. We don't need all that. Those things might help. What we need are men and women willing to imitate and men and women worthy of being imitated. That's what we need. That's the secret to making it happen. It's been the secret all along. Jesus' disciples didn't do anything new. They did what Jesus did. When you look at Peter and John in Acts 4, they're uneducated, common men. And yet, when they get pressed and persecuted and questioned, guess what? They speak like Jesus, act like Jesus, Think like Jesus. Face the Pharisees bold in the face like Jesus did. And what's the conclusion? The whole council recognized that they had been with Jesus. 
Paul says the same thing later in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1, Be imitators of me. Why? Because I imitate Christ. Everyone imitates someone, whether you're willing to admit it or not. There are people in your life that you are following. Everyone follows someone. You might be like, no, 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 I don't follow anyone. You do. You do. You were built to. You were made to. It is a creational fact that we as humans follow someone. We imitate someone. We were made as what? Images of God, which means that you will be an image, an imitator of something. You were made to be a mirror. Now, whose reflection are you casting? That's the question. Is of paramount importance because who you follow, who you imitate, indicates the God or the gods that you love. As we're going to see in these next few, passages, uh, next few verses. The reason Paul is so bold to say that we should imitate him and walk with those or follow those or watch those who imitate the pattern of the gospel is found in verse 18. Why? Because many, for many... Of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears. Walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. The logic is simple. Either we will follow those who lead us to Christ. Or we will follow those who lead us away from Christ. Are the people we follow friends of the cross or enemies of the cross? How do they live? Do they look, act like Jesus? Do they speak like Jesus? Do the things they do remind you of Jesus? Now, granted, they're not going to be perfect. They're not going to be Jesus, but the like Jesus is pretty close. We'll settle for the fact that they're like Jesus, even if they're not Jesus. They're not perfect. There's tons of men and women in this church that are like Jesus, as imperfect as they may be. Still fighting with their wife. Still having bad days. Still saying choice words when they stub their toe. They're imperfect people. And yet, the question is, is are they like Jesus? Faithful discipleship means following someone who is a tried and true friend of the cross. They are gracious people. Forgiving people. Loving people. Gentle people, truthful people, blunt people, honest people, kind people. Those are the kinds of attributes that you find in Friends of the Cross because that is who Jesus is. He's dead honest. But he's gentle and kind and loving. He doesn't mind telling us that we're sinners, but he does so in the most loving way possible. The people you follow look like that. What about for those of us who have followers? Just like you follow someone, someone's following you. Now, for those of us who have followers, we have to ask, do we lead people closer to Christ? Are they benefiting in their walk with the Lord because of their time with us? Or do we actually confuse them? Do we try to get them on our rah-rah squad, cheering for us? following us into sins and gossip and hatred and all these things that we do, suspicions of other people? Or do we lead them in a way, teaching them how to deal with the fact that people are imperfect, but Jesus is perfect? Do people grow because of us? Are we walking in the pattern of gospel centrality? Let me ask you, just look at your life. The footsteps you make. Are you willing for someone? We'll ask this. Will the Christian faith continue on if someone follows those footsteps? The answer is yes, because God's faithful. But we want him to work because of us, not in spite of us, right? We want our footsteps to be as closely aligned with the pattern of the gospel as possible so that we don't draw anyone astray. Faithful discipleship means not just following tried and true friends of the cross. It also means being tried and true friends of the cross. There's a stark difference between those who think on the goal of Christ and those who think about other things. The differences are laid out in verses 19 and 20. On the one hand, the enemies of the cross, 
Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. Now, this is set in contrast to what's said in verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. What we have at stake here is a different walk. One walks as enemies of the cross. One walks as friends of the cross. Walks according to the pattern that was just mentioned. There's a difference in destination. One is destined for destruction. The other is destined for citizenship in heaven. There's a different God. One serves their belly, which is all the worldly, fleshly cravings. I just got to say this, or I just got to do this, or I've just got to take this. That's, those people are just, just got to. These are those folks. Serve their immediate cravings. Whereas those who are friends of the cross serve the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a difference in glory. One glories in shame. The other waits for the transformation of our glorious bodies to be like the glorious body of the resurrected Savior. There's a difference in mindset. One thinks only of earthly things, mostly of earthly things. The other one thinks about, thinks about Christ-centered things. Imitate friends of the cross is the message that Paul has. Be a friend of the cross so that others can imitate you. The proverb stands true from Proverbs chapter 13, verse 20. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. Beware of who you follow and their mindset, because it will indicate your end, your God, and your glory. Now, what was true of Paul is true of all of us who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus died for sinners. He rose again and has laid hold of us who have put our faith in him. He has made us his own. And now, due to his redemptive accomplishment, we are free to pursue the benefits of his victory. We are free to live in the awesome, amazing truth that our God has won. We are runners running behind, not yet attained, not yet crossed the finish line. But our Savior owns the finish line. Our Savior is the finish line. And so we run, eyes set on the prize, on the goal. We strain muscles. We break backs. We beat hearts. We do whatever it takes Bleed or sweat to have our Savior. That's the Christian life. It's not easy. It's not easy. It's harder than if you were to just try to run a marathon today, being untrained and just to take off running for the full marathon length. But yet that's what we do day after day. We wake up. We forget our yesterday. We forget the good that we did. We forget the bad that we did. We catch a fresh breath of air through the, hopefully through the time that you read the Bible, you let it breathe fresh air into your lungs. Let it wipe your sweat, give you a drink, and you run again. And we keep running until the race is done. Why jog? Why lay on the grass? Your Savior is at the finish line. Now here's what I'm going to do. Typically I would pray at the end of this. But I was so impacted by this text that I felt like I had to spend time praying about it over my own life. And I feel like maybe we should as a church. So for the next several moments, I just invite you to pray. Consider the truths that you've heard. Are you holding on to the past? Are you counting scars? Are you counting wounds? Are you counting problems? Are you counting people who've hurt you? Are you counting sins and are you counting addictions? There's some of you that are counting victories. Look at everything I've done and how good I am. 
Either way, what are you looking to? Are you looking behind? Or are you looking up? So as a church, it's just a good time. We've done a lot in the last year together. We've built a building and refreshed a new building. We're ready for the next leg of ministry. Let us not dwell in what's behind, though. Let's push on. We've done life together. We've gone to life groups together. We've, we've loved each other. We've shared the gospel together. This is something like my, I don't know, 103rd sermon or something. There's some number to it. But there's more sermons to be preached, more people that need the gospel, more children that need to hear the good news. And that will only happen if you, as a church, forget what lies behind, straining forward, press on. So let's just take some time quietly and pray. And then I'll end us in prayer here in just a few moments. Father God, we bear our hearts before you. God, you know where our eyes look. God, you know each individual in this place. You know whether they're looking back on their past, whether for good or for bad. You know whether they're dwelling in past victories or past hurts. God, you know the sins that are hindering them from running well the things in their hands that they clutch to, the things that chain their ankles and keep them from running as swiftly as they could. God, you know the things in my heart and in my life that trip up my mind in this race. God, we as a church confess that not only are we prone to wander and try to blaze our own trail and run in our own beat and pattern, but God, sometimes we just stop running altogether. Father, will you help our legs move? Will you keep our hearts beating? Will you keep our eyes on Jesus? As a church, Father, I pray that we don't get distracted, that we don't just jog together as a church, leisurely through our community, but that we'll run hard for the goal to make it our own. Thank you that Jesus has accomplished our redemption. Now, Father, I pray that we will run in his passionate victory and that we will press on together until we together cross the finish line and celebrate with your son face to face. Help us remember that day to look forward to it, to build our lives around it. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.